0: This is Josh Nelson, and you're listening to Plato's Couch, a podcast where I'll explore works of cinema and television discussing their artistic, cultural, and political significance. For this first episode, I've chosen Catherine Bigelow's 1987 film, Near Dark, a work that, in the now 30 years since its initial theatrical release and modest box office earnings, has garnered a small but dedicated fan following. And though perhaps seen by some as one of Catherine Bigelow's lesser works, Given the greater commercial and critical success of her later films, such as Point Break in 1991, Zero Dark Thirty in 2012, and The Hurt Locker in 2008, for which she would receive an Academy Award for Best Director, remarkably, and perhaps somewhat shamefully, the only female ever to do so, Near Dark remains a significant, if undervalued, work in her filmography described by Bigelow as a vampire western and set in the contemporary Midwest, Near Dark centers around Caleb, a young cowboy played by Adrian Pasdar, who, following a brief and intimate encounter with May, played by Jenny Wright, a girl who is most definitely not what she at first seems, finds himself transformed into a creature of the night and kidnapped by a group of vampires where he's given an ultimatum. If he wants to stay alive, he must kill. With its striking visual sensibility... The film was shot by journeyman cinematographer Adam Greenberg, who had worked as a DP on both of James Cameron's Terminator films, and with a score by renowned German electronic group Tangerine Dream, Near Dark is characterised by an evocative and at times poetic look and sound. In this aesthetic regard, the film bears some uncanny similarities to Michael Mann's 1983 film The Keep, a film that, not coincidentally, was also scored by Tangerine Dream. But beyond the film's production design, Near Dark is also noteworthy for showcasing some exceptional performances, chiefly among them that by Bill Paxton, who tragically passed away earlier this year, in the role of Severin, the gun-slinging, unrestrained id of the vampire clan. Near Dark also marks an important chapter in the development of Bigelow as a filmmaker, consolidating a number of the key tropes that will recur throughout her career, such as her fascination with transgression, her exploration of gender roles and power, the representation of violence and her interest in the figure of the outsider or social outcasts, and perhaps most prominently here, her reworking of cinematic genres. Near Dark was only Bigelow's second feature, and first as solo director, having previously worked on the 1981 biker film The Loveless, which starred a young Willem Dafoe, a production she co-wrote and directed with Monty Montgomery. Speaking on the commentary track from the now out-of-print DVD and Blu-ray release of the film, Catherine Bigelow elaborates on the genesis of Near Dark...
1: I'd written the script on spec with Eric Red, and we had given it to Ed Feldman, who really liked the material a lot, but was very hesitant about my directing it. And because it was written on spec, we had full control over it. And the only way that we would sell the script was with my directing it. So he finally realized that that was the only way he was going to be able to make this piece, and to his credit, gave me the opportunity. Actually, a friend of mine, Oliver Stone, read the script. I wanted his opinion on it, and he read it, and he called it a kind of script haiku. There was a poetic structure to it that was very evocative, and so I think it was not a difficult script to visualize. And that probably had to do with the fact that as a director, if you're developing your own material, you can write it exactly how you see it. There's no translation that it has to go through. It, it's, it's something very immediate. So I think upon reading it, you're seeing the vision very clearly. And that's certainly the response we got when we were in the process of trying to uh, look for financing. I think that was one of its great strengths.
0: Developed with Eric Redd, whose writing credits included the 1986 film The Hitcher and who would later collaborate with Bigelow on her 1989 film Blue Steel and his own directorial feature Undertow in 1996, Bigelow's comments underscore the clear vision she had for Near Dark, a point reinforced by the careful and considered manner in which she cast the film. In addition to the lead roles played by Paz and Wright, Bigelow hired three actors that had already appeared together on James Cameron's Aliens, made a year earlier. Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen and Jeanette Goldstein. The decision reportedly came about after Bigelow sought approval from Cameron, with whom she would develop both a personal and professional relationship. Cameron was hired as executive producer on Point Break and co-wrote and produced Bigelow's 1995 film Strange Days. Bigelow marks this intertextual casting by referencing Cameron's film when the title Aliens appears on a cinema marquee during one of the street scenes in Near Dark. Speaking on the making of documentary, Living in Darkness, that also accompanied the out-of-print release of the film, Paxton, Henriksen and Goldstein discussed their initial reactions to reading the script.
2: I remember getting the script and sitting down to read it, and I thought, God, this, has, this is like this, has this great vampire, kind of contemporary vampire story but it had this kind of elements of Bonnie and Clyde, because this family are having to kind of shoot their way out. I love the idea that these were modern vampires who couldn't just rely on their supernatural abilities. And I, I remember calling Lance Henriksen up and, and saying, and really being excited and saying, Lance, I, I read this incredible script. You, you, you've got you've to you've read it. Billy Paxton called me in the middle of the night, and this is no kidding, and, and he was living in Santa Monica at the time, and said, hey, Lance... I got this great script, and it's a western, and it's about vampires. And I said, oh, God, Billy, come on. He's like, Bill, 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 listen, we've just done Aliens for Jim Cameron. You know, we don't want to go off and do some, you know, half-cocked, you know, B-movie. So I said, look, just read the script. Just read it, get back to me. Um, Like, a day later, he calls me back. Now he's the one who's excited. We have got to do this movie. The script was beautiful, it was like poetry. The It was so spare, the dialogue. I
0: thought it was just very different from a lot of the scripts I'd read. You know, it didn't insult your intelligence. It left a lot to be imagined. The casting of the trio is also motivated by a key thematic consideration, as Bigelow explains.
1: I felt that if you if you literally inherited a group of actors who had already... Kind of gone through a production together, which is like experiencing war. You you take them, and it's an intact family. There's a you know again a familiarity that is undeniable, and I thought that would be a tremendous asset.
0: Beyond this focus on family, a theme I'll return to shortly, the distinguishing characteristic of Bigelow and Red's screenplay was their drawing together elements from both the western and horror genres. Though not the first vampire western hybrid, 1959's Curse of the Undead and the 1966 film. Billy the Kid versus Dracula, both predate Near Dark, Bigelow's film was perhaps the first to explore the more serious possibilities afforded by this genre pairing. As Bigelow describes...
1: We wanted to write a Western, but realised that we needed to find and or graft it onto perhaps a more saleable, at that time, element, that being a horror genre. So we decided to create a vampire Western, and that's what we endeavored to do. And it was a very productive process working together with Eric and trying to create something very romantic and and sensual and ironic and also able to work within a couple of genres at the same time so that he were, so to speak, thinking outside of the box. And that was offered us a lot of opportunity from a story standpoint, from a visual standpoint, from a thematic standpoint. It was a pretty gratifying experience.
0: While Bigelow notes the element of irony within Near Dark, it's worth pointing out that what she's potentially referring to there is the incongruous scenario of vampires in a Western context, and certainly not ironic in that hip, sarcastic, or self-referential sense that underscores much of contemporary Hollywood cinema. The closest Bigelow ever gets in Near Dark to approaching a form of the self-referential is through the occasional visual cue or loaded dialogue that enables her to play off the disparity between Caleb's understanding of the world, one that is initially aligned with the audience's point of view, and that of May, or the other vampires. This discrepancy between Caleb's understanding of the world is established in the very opening shot of the film, a close-up of a mosquito sucking blood from Caleb's hand. Seconds later, he squashes the insect, remarking, "'Dumb suck.'" This playful, if somewhat tongue-in-cheek opening, cleverly foreshadows Caleb's soon-to-be fate, in which May's bite will leave him as the dumb suck. The dialogue in the very next scene where Caleb first sights May, and then boyishly attempts to woo her, is underscored by a similar self-awareness, drawing attention to the contrast between Caleb's misperception of May, he has no idea she's a vampire, and perceives her instead in a purely objectified sense, and the otherworldliness of May. Trading insults with two locals, one of whom complains to Caleb, what the hell's eaten you? Before May, here filmed in slow motion licking an ice cream cone, is spotted by one of the locals. Turn around and feast your eyes, he says. The references to feeding continue as Caleb approaches May. Here their dialogue is again underscored by double meanings.
2: Have a bite?
1: Bite? Just dying for a cone. Dying.
0: Like a number of other vampire films released in the 1970s or 1980s, such as George Romero's Martin, Tony Scott's The Hunger, or Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys, Near Dark explores the metaphoric associations of vampirism with addiction, Caleb is mistaken for a junkie by law enforcement shortly after he's turned, or anxiety surrounding AIDS, a blood transfusion becomes crucial to the film's ending. Beyond these metaphors, however, the addition of the vampire to the Western genre in Near Dark also adds a key component to the film's romantic drama, one that is played out subtextually throughout the film. As Bigelow elaborates...
1: See, the beauty of it, at least when we were writing it, what we were attracted to is, is the irony and how everything was kind of working in a constant duality. He sees the situation as perhaps we in the audience see it having no idea that there's this hidden agenda and this, again, this alternate universe that is operating in spite of himself, that he's incapable of of altering or stopping or actually not being seduced by. And she, of course, realizes her incredible powers and would love very much to suppress them at this point in time and just be a normal person and just fall in love with this boy, and yet she can't. She'll never be that person. And so it's... It's very complicated for her. There's a sadness there, and yet an, an effort to, to fight it at the same time, to ignore it, to imagine that she's not really who she is, that she's somebody simple and normal and who he sees her as. So that was what was really interesting in the writing of it and in the playing of it, is really the subtext. And that's what the vampire mythology brought to this material, to a very... In a way, a very simple love story set against the Western landscape was this beautiful complication. So there was a constant subtext that was running in tandem and parallel to what is happening on the surface.
0: The tension between these two worlds or genres that Bigelow just described is also evident throughout Near Dark in Howard E. Smith's editing. In the early stages of the film, Smith repeatedly uses wipe transitions to move from one scene or setting to the next... This technique, which has associations with the classical Hollywood western, here reinforces the coexistence and movement between two worlds, since the wipe transition depicts, however briefly, two settings on the screen at the same time. In Near Dark, the editing conveys Caleb's transition, or transgression, from one world, that of day, into the world of night, from human to other. Importantly, Smith never uses this transition once Caleb has crossed over into that other world. This shift in Caleb's identity away from the safe confines of the Western is further reinforced when his iconic cowboy hat comes loose and tumbles into the dust as he's kidnapped by the vampire clan, snatched up into their speeding Winnebago. Bigelow's experimentation with the Western and horror films in Near Dark is reflective of the filmmaker's broader approach to genre, particularly over the first half of her career. As Caitlin Benson a lot writes in a piece for Film Quarterly, Bigelow's repeated engagement with Hollywood genres can best be understood as a challenge to hegemonic temporalities, to narrative orders that only engage some people's experiences of desire, violence and death. At variable distances from Hollywood, more or less of an outsider herself, Bigelow makes films that challenge the way we think about the relationship of agency to environment, acknowledge the effects Hollywood genres have on the way we see the world, and invite us to see differently. In Near Dark, Bigelow's appropriation of the Western and the horror film is underscored by an awareness of the way these genres work to reinforce, or in some cases subvert, dominant ideology.
1: One thing that we endeavoured to do with the vampire mythology was to almost invent our own mythology by, again, finding a common denominator of reality, where we eliminated the crosses, the garlic, the stakes, the silver bullets, and try to keep it understandable, as accessible as possible, and think of it as, I don't think of it in metaphoric terms. And so really it's the consequence of love and attraction, and only this has pretty grave consequences.
0: Though the word vampire is never actually mentioned in Near Dark, by redefining this traditionally European figure one steeped in gothic and supernatural lore within the distinct American landscape of the Western, Near Dark works to question certain ideological assumptions that underscore the genre, such as the belief in the myth of progress, of social order emerging from chaos, or the notion of regeneration through violence. The questioning of these key genre elements is apparent from the outset, particularly Bigelow's scepticism towards the Western myth of progress, Caleb's introduction in the film is marked by a sense of stasis that reflects his small-town existence. Just prior to spotting May, he laments, almost to himself, Wish I may, wish I might, wish I was a thousand miles from here tonight. Bigelow impresses upon the narrative the sense that progress, at least for Caleb's Western identity, has come and gone. The cowboy persona belongs to an older time that struggles for relevance and meaning in a contemporary context. As Leo Brody writes for Film Quarterly, There's a tremendous sense of nostalgia permeating near dark that springs directly from viewing the vampire story through the lens of the genre of the belated Western, in which young boys hankering to be cowboys hang out desperately in dead-end small towns, the old heroic myth of the West long vanished. Beyond the sense of nostalgia that Brody identifies, the vampires in Near Dark disrupt these myths of progress by virtue of their own relationship to time. These vampires are defined by their immortality, but also by an inability to physically age. They are, in a sense, fixed in time, unable to mature beyond the moment of their transformation, rendering any real sense of progress impossible. This is certainly the case for Homer, played by Joshua Miller, the outwardly young member of the vampire family who repeatedly complains of the burden of being an old man trapped inside a child's body. Taken as a group, the vampire family presents as an incoherent collection of US histories, each member seemingly plucked from disparate moments in time. Jesse, a former Civil War soldier who fought for the South. Diamondback, a 1920s Dust Bowl mistress. Severin, a Wild West gunslinger clad in Lizard King leathers. Homer, a Beat Generation child sporting a William Burroughs t-shirt. And May, the most recent addition to the family, whose denim outfit seems appropriate to the contemporary era. The notion of linearity so crucial to myths of progress is destabilised by this incongruous grouping of personal history. Time, in the face of the vampire becomes effectively meaningless. Coupled with Tangerine Dream's electronic synth score, which runs counter to the typical musical cues of the Western, these characters feel both out of time and place, giving the landscape of near-dark an almost otherworldly sensibility, where any notion of progress has been replaced by a seemingly endless nightly routine of feeding and carnage. Here it's tempting to interpret the relationship between the vampire and the mythical West in another metaphoric sense, in that Bigelow associates the vampire's voracious thirst for blood with the destruction of the environment. A scene in which Caleb consumes too much of May's blood while feeding from her, threatening her life, is set against the backdrop of a vast array of oil pumps. Despite the obvious sexual connotations of the pumps and the erotic subtext of Caleb and May's sharing fluids, The scene also invites interpretations regarding humankind's drain on natural resources, a pursuit that has forever altered the landscape of the American West away from its mythical origins. This sense of repetition and decline that pervades near dark also infects the film's treatment of violence, undermining those Western myths in which violence typically serves as a positive force for social and cultural regeneration. In a traditional Western narrative, violence is often employed as a means to save the township or family, by killing off those threats, typically in the form of outlaw gangs, Native Americans, or aggressive capitalists, whose business interests threaten the community. In Near Dark, however, the use of violence, even in the climactic confrontation between Caleb and the vampires, is not neatly reincorporated in its mythological capacity for social restoration. Violence exists here almost solely as a means to survival, one that is emptied of redemptive potential. In doing so, Bigelow questions the purely ideological distinctions between constructive and destructive violence, so that Caleb's hesitancy to kill is paralleled by a hypocritical willingness to drink from May after she kills, or the manner in which he rejoices in the excessively violent demise of the vampire clan in the closing moments of the film. By eroding the boundaries between so-called good and bad violence, Near Dark works to demythologize the Western's insistence on violence as a positive social force even as the film still concludes with the eradication of the threat to the family. In an interview with Marsha Coburn of the Chicago Tribune at the time of the film's initial release, Bigelow was questioned about the film's depiction of violence. Foregrounding the filmmaker's gender, Coburn asks, What's a nice woman like you doing making erotic, violent vampire movies? Bigelow responds, I think women are very interested in violence. They're certainly the victims of a lot of it, so they're focused on it. Admittedly, movie-making is a male-dominated industry, and within the codes of who-does-what material, women are more associated with emotional material, and men with the apparatus, the technology, the hardware. But I don't think of Near Dark as a violent movie, but rather an emotional, moral one. Bigelow's insistence on the film's emotional, moral content emerges in and through the film's romantic couple, Caleb and May, and the treatment of family, a theme that is again inextricably linked to issues of genre. In both the Western and the horror film, family often serves as a key element, the social institution that the narrative typically works to rescue or restore. This is certainly the case in classic Westerns like John Ford's 1956 film The Searchers, a work that resonates strongly throughout Near Dark, or in horror films like Toby Hooper's 1982 film Poltergeist, where the threat to the family and inevitable elimination of that threat serve as the film's primary focus. Here, Bigelow discusses the importance of family within near dark.
1: One of the dynamics that we really enjoyed working with, both in the script and then in shooting, was again the constant reminder that even though these individuals live this extraordinary life, there's still a real desire to maintain a family structure, to keep the family intact, to replicate the hierarchical structure that is necessary to maintain order in the family. And so you have something so prosaic set against something so bizarre.
0: In a cultural and political context, it's worth noting that Near Dark was released towards the end of Ronald Reagan's second term in office, an administration that had repeatedly pushed an ideological agenda of traditional family values and the nostalgic return to America's post-World War II past. In Near Dark, Bigelow complicates this traditional representation of family, for starters, she inverts the Western trope where an outsider assumes responsibility for saving the family, such as in George Stevens' 1953 Western, Shane. In Near Dark, it is the family, in the form of Caleb's father and younger sister, who accept responsibility for attempting to rescue their outsider's son. But more significantly, in Near Dark, Bigelow expands the typical family under threat trope by effectively doubling the conflict. Here, each family is under threat from the other. Caleb threatens the unity of the vampire group in the same way that the intervention of the vampires disturbs the sanctity of the Coltons. Just as Bigelow blurs distinctions between good and bad violence, in Near Dark, audience sympathy is divided between both families. As Leo Brody writes, the conflict between these families is at the core of the story, and it's not so obvious which is preferable. The violent, risky world of the evil vampires, whose sense of adventure lures Caleb out of his small-town doldrums, or the bucolic, pleasant, but ultimately bland and boring world of his real family. The differences between the two families are also noteworthy. In Caleb's family, the mother is missing, an unusual trait for 1980s cinema, in which the father is more commonly absent, while May's family, at least on the surface, more closely resembles the nuclear ideal with two parents in Jesse and Diamondback and children in Severin, Homer and May. But this is, of course, an illusion. The vampire clan can never be a family in that ideal Reaganite sense, since their adherence to a traditional structure belies both the threat they pose and the distorted reality where aged men appear as young children and where offspring are sired not from parents, but from other offspring. For example, it's Homer that sires May. As a consequence, Bigelow effectively denaturalizes the ideal concept of the family, presenting it instead as an illusion, a cultural construction organised around a gender-based hierarchy. It's almost impossible to talk about Catherine Bigelow's work as a filmmaker without engaging this issue of gender, as the earlier Marcia Coburn interview question illustrates. And not surprisingly, given the scarcity of female directors working within or on the fringes of Hollywood, particularly within so-called masculine genres, Issues of gender are often granted a heightened significance in Bigelow's films. Though Bigelow is not one to shy away from questions of gender in her work, she has in the past resisted labelling her works as feminist. In an interview at the time of release for Blue Steel, Bigelow remarked, I subscribe to feminism emotionally, and I sympathise with the struggles for equality, but I think there's a point where the ideology is dogmatic, so I'm not saying that Blue Steel is a feminist track per se, but there's a political conscience behind it despite her hesitancy in ascribing labels to her films. As a female filmmaker working in an industry dominated by men, the response to Bigelow's work is frequently characterised in terms that foreground this notion of a quote-unquote female perspective. However, as Anna Powell writes in an article for Screen, Bigelow has tended to take up an anti-essentialist stance in response to accusations that she prefers masculine subject matter and quotes the filmmaker as saying, "'I think that this notion that there's a woman's aesthetic, a woman's eye,' is really debilitating. It ghettoises women. This rejection of essentialist notions of gender is also evident in the way Bigelow reworks genre. As Christina Lane writes in an article for Cinema Journal, her films testify to the futility of assuming a natural gender or sexuality, opting instead to explore the performativity and inconstancy of supposedly natural roles. Bigelow's authorial enterprise is motivated by the goal of probing gender and genre in a way that deconstructs both terms. Therefore, she brings into relief the constructedness of gender in a way that frames her own status as a woman director in terms of performance, rather than innate femininity. This is certainly true of the many strong females in her films, such as Maren Cantor in The Loveless, Jamie Lee Curtis in Blue Steel, Laurie Petty in Point Break, Angela Bassett in Strange Days, or Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty, figures who, even when not the central focus of the film, are explicitly framed in the context of worlds dominated by men. Near Dark is no exception on that front, and despite the prominence of Caleb over May within the narrative, the film is underscored by Bigelow's political conscience in respect of gender and power. Throughout Near Dark, Bigelow repeatedly overturns Caleb's gendered assumptions about May, a strategy that reflects her interest in drawing attention to the construction of gender roles and power. Shortly after they meet, Caleb takes May to show off his horse, and when the horse bolts, sensing May's otherness, Caleb lassoes May and attempts to pull her towards him. Instead, she grabs the rope, resting control of the scenario.
1: You're pretty strong. Yeah, stronger than you.
0: This inversion of traditional gendered power is repeated when Caleb, on his way to return May to her family, stops his truck and refuses to drive her the remaining distance until she acquiesces to kiss him. Once again, his assumption of power is an illusion. May takes control of the erotic moment, dominating him, before landing the fateful bite that will precipitate his transformation. Even later on in the narrative, as their relationship takes on a maternal dimension, when Caleb unwilling to satisfy his own bloodlust, turns to drinking from May for sustenance, she ultimately rejects him when his thirst threatens her life. Time and again, Bigelow draws attention to the power hierarchies embedded in traditional gender representations, and then seeks to question or overturn them. Before wrapping up this episode, I want to focus the discussion on two key sequences within Near Dark. The bar scene that occurs approximately midway through the narrative, A moment in cinema that demonstrates, perhaps as keenly as any across the course of her distinguished career, Bigelow's immense skills as a filmmaker. And then the film's ending. But first, the bar scene. Here, Caleb, on his last chance to prove his worth to the vampire family, is taken to a dive bar, inhabited by bikers and rednecks, with the understanding that he will fulfil the group's demands to kill. What transpires across this nearly 11-minute scene is a gradual, unnerving, comic an ultimately bloody spectacle that highlights the horror and the charisma of the vampire clan as they tease and dispatch their unsuspecting prey. Here Bill Paxton recalls the scene.
2: I remember shooting the bar scene, which is kind of the set piece for the movie, with that first shot of those pool balls breaking, and you hear that dun dun dun, 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 dun. And then and then suddenly bam the door comes open, and here they come. Her <laughs> that sequence has so much confidence as a piece of filmmaking. Barton, give me a couple of shots. Whatever donkey pissed, you're shoving down these cocksuckers' throats. Hey,
1: hey!
0: Bigelow's use of music forms a crucial element in structuring the drama here. The scene opens with Naughty Naughty by John Parr of St. Elmo's Fire fame, followed by Jules Holland's Morse Code, Fever by the Cramps. And lastly, George Strait's The Cowboy Rides Away, tracing a series of moods and styles that reflect and inflect the drama as it unfolds. In an interview with Gavin Smith, Bigelow was asked about the way the scene is structured around these four pieces of music, with each piece serving as its own narrative act. Bigelow responds, It's written that way too. It's an entire reel. In a way, it's a film within a film, with a beginning, a middle and an end. It's very lyrical in a way. Its rhythm, its strength is its patience. It's ultimately turning the bar into an abattoir, but it's turning that process into a state of art. The artfulness that Bigelow mentions is apparent through her control of dramatic timing, the gradual escalation of each confrontation within the bar towards an inevitable bloody end, and then retreating, pausing to build to the next conflict, often undercutting the moments of horror with dark comic relief. It's a directorial approach that puts the audience in an uncomfortable position, caught between our repulsion at the callousness and brutality of the vampires, but also by our willingness to identify with them, a consequence of the charismatic way in which they dominate the scene. Much of this tension is driven by Bill Paxton's performance, in which he grants the bloody spectacle a sense of joyous occasion, chewing the scenery with unrestrained delight. His screen presence throughout the scene is magnetic, a performance all the more remarkable, given the condition that Paxton was in when they began shooting.
2: I had woken up in my apartment in, in Venice with with my gal, and I had a terrible migraine headache. I get really bad migraine headaches where I, for about a half hour I can't even hardly see. I get it's like the twilight zone. And so I said to Catherine, I said, Catherine, I am just I'm so excited about the scene, but I am just I just have no energy. And, I, and so I said, can I can we get a doctor out here? Is the medic on the set? Can I get a shot of something? And I remember I had kind of my first shot of B-12. I tell you, next thing I knew, I was rocking and rolling. And that barroom scene just got wild. It just wilder and wilder. I remember, oh, you!
0: Bigelow's comments further underline just how impressive Paxton's performance is within the scene.
1: I think that this is one of Bill Paxton's greatest, greatest, greatest moments In everything he did in this scene, he just made it his own. And he really owned both the character, the moment, the scene. And I think it was almost a kind of reincarnation. It was a performance that transcended itself. And I think certainly when we were shooting it, almost in a perverse way, we were having as much fun as they were. And I think this is the moment when you realize we've kind of been indoctrinated individually, and we feel that we've seen the darkness to their characters, but when you see it kind of reach critical mass and this is when you realise what they're capable of and you see the kind of cold, calculating severity of the fact of their lives. And
0: so to the ending of Near Dark, a conclusion that remains habitually misunderstood, echoing the thoughts of a number of critics, Jay Scott, in his review for The Globe at the time of the film's release, referred to the ending as a cop-out. Even more condemnatory is Christopher Sharrett, who, in his piece The Horror Film in Neoconservative Culture, describes Near Dark as a reactionary renovation of the Dracula story. Sharrett writes, The vampire is no longer the parasitical aristocrat, but the predatory, shiftless, and anarchical lower-class element causing trouble for its own. The operatics of the vampire's demise are unwarranted, since there is virtually nothing in the narrative to motivate sympathy for them. The problem with Sharrett’s comments, and those like his, are that they deny or ignore the manner in which Bigelow elicits sympathy for the vampires over the course of the film, gradually suturing the audience into their close bonds, particularly in the film's final stages. The concluding moments of Near Dark are overwhelmingly sympathetic in their construction such as the shot of Homer, in tears and covered in flames, as he pursues May and Caleb's sister, Sarah, down a sunlit highway, his death seemingly preferable to the pain of abandonment. Or the tenderness shown between Jesse and Diamondback when they clasp hands moments before their death and remark, fun times. This is contrasted with a close-up of Caleb, who, witnessing their fiery destruction, calls out, roast, the problem with Sharretts' reading of the film is that he misrepresents Bigelow's shot structure and the tone of the ending, both of which promote an empathetic view of the vampire family. As Paxton explains...
2: Even though we're anti-heroes in the movie, and you know that we have to come to you know our, our just desserts at the end of the film, just like how The Godfather works, because you see this incredible family allegiance to one another, it almost creates an empathy because they they have their code, even though they're like gypsies who kind of live, you know, they're a pariah, you know, society that, that, that feed off the general public.
0: The second point that Sharrett makes in relation to Near Dark's supposedly reactionary conservatism regards the fate of the romantic couple, in which he laments, and I quote, the absence of anything problematic in Caleb's implausible rescue of May. Here Sharrett writes... The rescue is, in fact, another reworked captivity narrative, wherein the white hero rescues the white, in this case also blonde, woman from the savage horde, even as she literally shares their blood and apparently identifies with them, not unlike Debbie's situation in The Searchers. Here there is even less evidence to support Sharratt's claims. The film's conclusion, in which May is transformed back to a human via the same transfusion process that saves Caleb, is struck through with ambiguity. In the film's final scene, May awakens in a darkened barn and, seeing the sun, relates to Caleb. What's happening? I'm afraid. The film closes on a freeze frame of the pair, caught mid-embrace, capturing the fear and uncertainty on May's face, partially lit from sunlight, while Caleb's face is obscured entirely by shadow. That Bigelow would end the film with this lighting design, effectively inverting the way both characters were introduced, Caleb in daylight and May at night, suggest a significant transformation has occurred and not a simplistic restoration of the status quo. Both Caleb and May, having transgressed into each other's worlds, must now contemplate a potentially impossible return to normality. At the very least, the cold light of this final image implies that the characters have been irrevocably altered by their experiences of the other world, an implication reinforced by Caleb's continuing to wear Severin's boot spurs. Anne May's fearful reaction to the sun, perhaps contemplating her loss of agency and the severed connection to the world of night. It's a moment in which the price of transgression, a theme common to much of Bigelow's cinema, is put to the audience. This is the horror that Catherine Bigelow brings to the final moments of Near Dark, and it's one that's writ large on the faces of the two central characters. Here Bigelow describes her response to the completed version of the film.
1: I was fortunate enough to work with actors that enabled me to exceed what I imagined was possible. I mean, I guess I I had a feeling for what these characters could become, but in the hands of these particular actors and their immense talents, I think they were able to take it so much further than I had even hoped in my wildest imagination. So there was a kind of almost transcendent will over matter. I mean, there was a kind of critical mass that took place when all of the actors were together in their own collective imaginations and projections onto the material. It became a real odyssey that we, I think, at some point during the process of shooting realized that something very special was taking place and we were all very grateful and wanting not really to comment on it for fear that it would suddenly all of a sudden disappear. That there was something very unique and that we were extremely fortunate and it was, uh, for lack of any other way of describing it, a very inspiring and inspired experience. Very difficult, very challenging, but when you look at dailies, you had the feeling that it was the perfect embodiment of an idea that could possibly take place.
0: And yet, despite Near Dark's distinct stylistic vision, its unique take on genre, and the strong performances from the key cast, the film was not a financial success. Released only two months after Joel Schumacher's popular vampire film, The Lost Boys, Near Dark went on to gross just under $3.5 million dollars, from a production budget of five million, here Catherine Bigelow, producer Stephen Jaffe, and members of the cast discuss their disappointment with the release of the film.
1: We opened almost day, day in, um, day for day with Lost Boys, which was, of course, a, a vampire movie and um, made by Warner Brothers that had a tremendous amount of muscle behind it—just Dis- distribution and marketing muscle behind it. And so we were this, um, you know, we were just this little, this, you know, this, this little whisper out there.
2: The nightmare of, of marketing um, independent films, The independent films weren't chic the way they are today.
1: They had chose to market it as a, a, release
0: it over Halloween weekend, and it had a big picture of a bloody head, which was like one
2: frame of the film.
0: I think it takes some some finesse to market a film like this, and it was certainly made with a lot of finesse. And I think it should it should have been handled with the respect that Catherine took in
1: making it, and that we all did. I mean, obviously, you make films to communicate, and and when initially it doesn't, it's daunting. I mean, it's devastating. You feel that what am I doing? I, I there must be something else I can do. Of course, I have no other skill. I can't do anything else. What can you know? So, got to try to figure out how to make this work. But um, I think that you realize that in fact timing is everything and you know either it didn't have the right obvious send-off but it is tenacious you know it's it the ideas in it are are either sound enough or captivating enough that it will find you know a life of its own.
2: I think people have discovered near dark more over the years
1: it's little energy has galvanized and gathered a lot of force, kind of like a, a wind, and and it's become something that, you know, actually, obviously, to this day, but, you know, over the course of time when I'm promoting films, is always a focus of a lot of conversation and curiosity and, and, and seeming admiration, so I'm very grateful.
0: Despite the disappointment... Near Dark would prove to be a significant and lasting work in Bigelow's career, an exploration of the various themes and the experimentation with genre that along with The Loveless and Blue Steel would culminate in the critical and commercially successful Point Break in 1991. But for now, that's a discussion for another episode. For a detailed list of references for this podcast, please visit filmology.com. That's filmology spelled with a P-H. And you can track me down on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Plato's Couch Pod, on Twitter at Plato's Couch, or via email at platoscouchpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Them when they've been shaved.